Welcome to Coffee with the Snows, where we talk about everything from survival to current events, but always flavored with high-octane caffeine and biblical thoughts. I'm your host, Art Snow, along with my co-host and beautiful wife, Sharon Snow. We begin every broadcast with us, with us describing our coffee mug of the day. Every mug in our collection has a story. Today, the coffee we're using, coffee mug we're using to drink from, is a black and red coffee mug with white letters that say, let it snow. As you know, our last name is Snow, and everything in our house has snow attached to it. We have snow plaques, we have snowflakes, we have snow mugs, we have snowballs, we have snow everything. And I love our name Snow. It's a great name. I didn't always, however, love my name, but my wife helped me to redeem my name, and now I love it. So, indeed, coffee with the snow. So, today is going to actually be part one a two-part podcast. Part one is looking back at 40 years of ministry. We're going to look back and find five mistakes that we made along the way. The reason we're doing this is because we believe that if you listen to the five mistakes that we made, you might be able to learn from them and not repeat them yourself. So we're going to get started. Today, five mistakes we've made in 40 years of ministry. Go ahead, Sean. You want to start with the first one? Sure. The first one is, as we, as I've looked back over our years of ministry, I don't think that we said thank you enough. Um, th- there's, there's some real value to letting the people that you work with know that they're appreciated and that, that you think they've done a good job, and that's encouraging to them. And Art and I, um, neither one of us are prone to... Uh, feeling like we have to be thanked for anything that we do. And that's okay because that's us. But what that produced in us was kind of an underlying uh, feeling that, you know, no one else uh, needed to be, you know, maybe no one else needed to to feel thanked or to feel like they were doing a good job. But I, I know that I've found that that's, that's not the case. Everyone needs encouragement. Everyone needs to know that what they're doing is good and is pleasing. If they're working for you, they need to know that, that they're making you happy. And uh, so, yeah, I think we should have said thank you a lot more often. Well, that's good. We can start now. So uh, in recent years, actually, we've tried to be more aware of that. And, I, you know, I think we just have to do things that make us more aware. Every time someone does something, um, we have to just think about saying thank you. And it's a constant reminder to one another. I think what helps is you reminding me and me reminding you. And oftentimes I'll say to our secretary, Michelle, I'll say to her, please remind me to, to thank uh, this person, or I'll put a note in my own calendar or a note on my phone, you know, Hey, Sharon, don't forget to send a thank you note. Don't forget to give an encouraging word. What's nice for me is to have the thank you notes in my site so I can see them in someplace where they're visible to me. It reminds me to write a thank you note. In fact, it's interesting that thank you notes are something almost of the past. You notice that people email, people text, uh, they maybe make a phone call, but they seldom write on a thank you note. That's true. And I, I think a, a handwritten thank you note is it speaks of effort. It speaks that I thought of you. It speaks that I took a little bit of extra time and, you know, stamps are like 55 cents now. So I actually spent a little money uh, to say thank you to you a little over the, over the top rather than just you know, a thumbs up in a text or, you know, 
it, it is the modern culture, but it doesn't have to be the modern culture. We could, um, you know, re revitalize or bring back that handwritten thank you note, I think. I can remember as our children are growing up, uh, the next broadcast we'll talk about our children some, but as the children are growing up, whenever they got a gift from grandma or a gift from somebody, we always encourage them to uh, write a thank you note. Right. And now that Emily's, uh, you know, an adult, a full-grown adult, I notice, uh, I just kind of find out, you know, by way of her own interactions that I, I know that she's written thank you notes, even to friends of ours. And so it's, it's a lesson that thankfully uh, we didn't, we didn't pass on that mistake to our kids, but we corrected that and, and our children do know how to write a thank you note. And, and Emily, and I know Danielle as well, incorporates that thank you note um, sending into their, into their life. So I'm really happy about that, that we didn't pass that mistake on to our children. All right, very cool. So that's number one. We did not say thank you enough in our 40 years of ministry. What's number two? Well, number two is that we didn't use constructive critiquing as often um, as we should have, and we did not use that mentoring tool well, because everyone needs to be constructively critiqued uh, for their own maturation, their own growth, their own uh, passage into maturity and uh, biblical perfection, which simply just means mature. But we, di we didn't use that well. Why do you think that is? Any, any reasons why you think we didn't use it well? I do. I, I have some very clear memories of why we didn't use it well. And most of it has to do with the differences in our gifting. Um, I'm a little more, a lot more prophetically gifted than you are. And I see things black and white. And it's easy for me to see a, a flaw or a character issue or a immaturity issue. It's very easy for me to see that. And uh, it's very easy for me to have a desire to deal with that. But I think your gifting as, you know, pastoral, uh, coupled with the mercy and the compassion and your strong belief in people kind of led you to uh, not not want to correct them, not want to hurt them, to allow them to work that out on their own. And so, in my opinion, uh, of course, that we caused people to have to grow up more painfully than they could have if we had kindly spoken to them about things in their character or things in their maturity level that were inhibitors to their walk with Christ. Sounds like it's all my fault. It is all your fault. Everything <laughs> no, is your fault. We've no. already established that. As I look at people's lives, I always see the best in people. And uh, yeah, along the way, I probably could have done that better. And the people who have mentored, which have mentored many people along the way, uh, it would have been, their growth might have been easier. But uh, we can certainly, again, change that now. And I think we could have caused them less pain and the people that they led and interacted, um, possibly, there's really no way to know this, uh, and I wouldn't want to go back and interview a whole bunch of people about this, but I think when, when you release someone who's immature or has a character uh, chink or character issue that they're working through, they can sometimes not lead people well. And so, in, in fact, we may have caused uh, people to not be led as well as they could have been led by people that we were releasing into leadership if we had 
been willing to more constructively critique and and bring correction and if something was done publicly to you know correct it publicly so that people weren't left trying to figure that out for themselves like I don't think that's right but the pastors aren't saying anything so maybe I'm wrong you know that's good well just before we do number three I just want to say make a comment this coffee today is outstanding I know you're drinking tea and that's cool but I just want to comment that my Starbucks is outstanding today I'm glad I'm glad. Number three, the third lesson we've learned along the way that we kind of made a mistake in is that um, I believe, we believe, that we were too driven. We didn't rest well. We didn't recreate well. Some of that is because we're baby boomers, right? Boomers are dri- the driven generation. That's so right. we believe in making it happen and making it happen now and making it happen hard. And uh, I think that if we look back now, I wish we would not have been so driven. I wish we would have taken more time to rest, to go on vacations, uh, to recreate better. I can remember for years we didn't do vacations because I didn't like them, because I love my work. I love what I do, and therefore, because I love what I do so much, it's life-giving to me. So I never felt like, you know, the guy who goes to the factory all the time or goes to the office all the time, and, and it's hard for them or drudgery for them or it's painstaking for them. For me, everything I've done in my life has been fun. I love ministry, so I've never felt like I had to take a vacation. I think, too, that the era in which we entered ministry was an era where, you know, it was it was the kind of the maybe mid to latter part of the charismatic movement, and there were a lot of things going on. So I, I can remember, you know, being a nurse, working, you know, all night, uh, coming home, and sleeping just an hour or so and getting up to start getting ready for a concert. You know, remember all those concerts right. at, at High Mill? And we would we would have these concerts where, I don't know, hundreds of kids would come and sit on this hill and listen to Christian bands. And that took a lot of work. But it was good work because we saw salvations at the end of every concert. And we then there was ministry to the newly saved people. And there there was this kingdom work to be done that in itself is energizing but then you you don't learn the um the uh the uh, i can't remember the quote the rhythms of grace what is it the unforced rhythms of unforced grace. rhythms of grace that's the word i was looking mm-hmm. for and we didn't learn that because we we were so sold out to the kingdom and also no one really taught us no one ever taught us to rest no one taught us the value of Sabbath or sabbatical. And those were some of the scriptures that were just easy to, uh, you know, kind of glaze over and go to the scriptures about working hard and getting things done for the kingdom. I can remember uh, being critical in many ways of this younger generation because they would take the week off for their, for their birthday. You know, I used to make fun of that a lot. And then and I realized what, um, that maybe they had something right that we had wrong. Right. I, I think that there is a there is a rhythm. There is a rhythm of work and rest that has to be established. And clearly we did not do that. And clearly, as we're trying to do that now, we struggle with we struggle with getting into that rhythm because oftentimes uh, at the end of a Sabbath day where we've really rested, I feel bad. And I have to tell myself, Sharon, you don't have to feel bad about this. It's OK not to have done something today, not to have accomplished something, but just to, you know, sit in the prayer room or just read or, 
you know, just do something that allows your body and your mind and your spirit just to rest in his presence. And so I think we'll work on that as we get older. We have a couple of years left. I think we can, we can get that <laughs> down pat. I think what I've realized too, is that as pastors, we have to model that. If you're not modeling resting, then your congregation would, might be following the wrong example. I can remember years ago, a supervisor of mine said that whenever people came to the door from the congregation, he always approached the door with a writing pad in his hand. So it looked like he was working, you know, and he lamented that fact later on uh, after looking back on that. But sometimes we have to be better models of rest and recreation for our people. I do remember once when we were younger, we, we did rest. Do you remember going to California and we, we laid on the beach and it was chilly on the Pacific coast and we had coats on and we had blankets and we both had books and we were so absorbed in our book that we were there for a long time. And I looked up just before a wave crashed, crashed into us because we had laid there so long the tide had come in. You remember that? I do. I do remember yeah. That. I think that was, that was another reason not to rest. Another reason not to rest. You could get washed away by a big wave. All right. Let's move on to number four. You want to just number four for us? I do. The number four thing that we think we did wrong was we took too long uh, getting our gifts to mesh. Uh, as I've already shared, we are very differently gifted, and those gifts caused conflict uh, between us when they should have caused cooperation. So the conflict resulted because there was not cooperation, and we, we took way too long to figure that out, I think. Well, because we are gifted so differently, oftentimes because I'm so given to mercy, so given to compassion, when, um, I, when I look at a person, that's what I see. I see through the lens of compassion and mercy. And not that you don't, but you have more of a prophetic edge, and therefore you can look at a person's life and see things that are danger signs. And I, I wasn't able to see that. In fact, I was critical of you for many years for being so critical of others. And over a long season of time, I learned that uh, you are God's gift to me and that I needed to listen to you more and listen to you better. So um, looking back, I find that it's certainly a lesson we have learned and um, I'm much better at that than I used to be, but it was a problem, it was a mistake we made along the way. And, and most of the mistake, honestly, was on my part, not yours, so. Well, I, I think on, on my part, I, going into our relationship, I, I had a, you know, 20 year old, 22 year old, uh, idea of who I was in God, which obviously, you know, had to grow and mature and change and all those things. But because of the difference in our gifting and your criticism of me in my gifting, what it caused in me was, a kind of a, an idea that, that there must be something wrong with me, that, that it couldn't be both. And it had to be either, or, and that, you know, because I respected you because, you know, you were my pastor, you were my husband, you were my best friend. You were the one who uh, helped me grow in Christ. I, I took your word for my, um, my seeming lack to heart and it began to dismantle who Christ had made me. And then I, I had to come to the realization that um, it's not that you were wrong, but you weren't right 
about me and that, that I had to learn how to um, stand on who I knew God had make, made me. And I had to figure out how to, um, I had to figure out how to work out my gift to its best advantages. And a gentleman named Jim Scott actually helped me one day. We were in a meeting together and um, I don't remember exactly why, but during the break in the meeting, he pulled me aside and he said, Sharon, you have a lot of things that to say that people need to hear, but you have to be able to say them in a way that they can hear you. And it probably took me three or four years with the Lord to navigate out what that meant and what that looked like. But I think today, um, if there is a conflict between us, I don't roll over. I hold my own. And I, uh, I think I've learned to say things in a way that your mercy gift and your pastoral gift can hear me. Uh, and so you have the ability to receive from me uh, better than, certainly better than you did 30 years ago. Yeah, no doubt. Okay. There's the fifth one, and I'm going to let you talk about this one more than me because I get a bit emotional about this one. So, uh, no sense crying on the broadcast, right? <laughs> so, no sense. Uh, well, <clears throat> this is actually something that we averted doing wrong. We were on a path to doing something very wrong, but we, uh, by God's grace, uh, only God's grace, we we were able to avert something that we could have done very, very wrong and would have had devastating implications to our family, to our church, to ourselves. So <clears throat> we uh, have a, a daughter who we adopted. And um, at some point, um, her biological mom uh, took her from us and it caused a, a two and a half year battle of us uh, trying to, to get her back and make sure that they could never touch her or come near her again. And the first 25 days, um, Danielle is that daughter, uh, the first 25 days she was gone from our presence. She was actually in the physical presence of this woman and a lot of bad things were happening to her that we kind of thought, but we had no idea how bad they were until we actually got her back 25 days later. So that initial 25 days was really, really difficult. And God's grace was there for us. And Art and I were a united front and we prayed and we fought that battle. And we initially, you know, we were together in this uh, very traumatic uh, situation, this very traumatic experience. However, the, the battle, the court battle to make sure that they could never do this to her again, uh, that they could never take her or touch her again, and that she would be forever uh, sealed in our family and protected, it took about two and a half years. And that two and a half year uh, process was incredibly emotionally, physically, and spiritually draining because it involved you know, lawyers, it involved more money than we, we had or ever hoped to have. It just, it involved a lot of stuff. And Danielle was very broken when she came home. And so there was a lot of care. There were lots of doctor's appointments. There were lots of things that rolled out that aren't necessarily important to Art and I's response. 
but I just add them briefly here just to say that it added the pressure on Art and I to handle this very, very traumatic event in our, in our life. And it created a lot of stress. So because we're differently gifted, because I'm a woman, he's a man, because of a number of reasons, we handled that stress differently. Uh, I threw myself into Danielle. I was just absorbed with Danielle. I was totally and completely, uh, 100% of my day was spent ministering to, worrying about, taking care of, watching over Danielle. And so um, the our lawyer had actually asked us to do a legal journal. And at the end of the two and a half years, I realized that I had written over a thousand pages in that legal journal. And it that really wasn't necessary. The thousand pages weren't necessary. I probably could have gotten away with maybe an eighth of that, maybe a third of it at the most. But it was, I found that it was the way I processed. So at the end of the day, after Danielle was in bed, I would sit and I would write in the journal everything that happened. And I was actually using it more as an emotional processing journal rather than the legal journal that it was intended to be, although it contained all the elements of a legal journal that the lawyer needed. Art, on the other hand, uh, just kind of centered into a defense mechanism that he had used all of his life, which is denial. And so when I would come to him and say like, oh, Art, I have to go away. Uh, will you please keep notes in the legal journal today? I would come home and there would be no notes. And I would say, can you tell me what happened in these areas? I don't know. I don't know. And I would get very, very frustrated. And he would just say to me, Sharon, you're wasting your time. God's got this. And I think underlying in my spirit, I knew God had it. But in my mind, this was my responsibility to, to carry out this task that I'd been given. And it was serving an emotional purpose in my life that um, I don't think at the time I realized I needed. And I didn't realize uh, how uh, deeply attached I was to the process of this legal journal. So fast forward two and a half years. And uh, we, we go to court on the glorious day when everything's over and we, we win and the judge uh, seals her adoption and we change her social security number. You know, we change everything. She's kind of like in mini witness protection and, and nobody can ever find her. And, you, you know, everything's all good. Her medical records are sealed and we walk out of the courtroom and Danielle's singing and dancing in the foyer. This is the happiest day of my life. And we go home. And ironically, you know, when you're in a traumatically stressful situation like that, there's a grace that God gives you for the, the season, for the time of the trauma. And then when the trauma is over, the grace goes away because there's no more need for that because it's finished. And Art and I woke up about oh, maybe two or three weeks after that court day and we realized that without our knowing it, this enormous separation had developed between the two of us. Because as I had um, thrown myself into Danielle and the care of Danielle and the protecting of Danielle, I had neglected my, um, I don't want to say duty, I would say my privilege. I neglected my privilege of being a wife to art and caring for him 
and focusing at least a portion of every day of my life on him. And so we had both grown very, very, very far apart. Um, and it caused a great deal of tension between us. Neither one of us fully understood why the other person reacted to the stress the way they did. And we both had very, um, I'm not sure what word I would use, but we both had very strong feelings against how each other had reacted. Would you say that's a good, uh, I felt very strongly that he should have been more involved in what I was doing. And he felt very, very strongly that I should have paid more attention to him as my husband during those years and not neglected him. And so it left us, uh, honestly, it left us not liking each other very much because I didn't like the man I was married to. And he wasn't crazy about the woman that I had become in my pursuit to protect Danielle. And so uh, we found ourselves, it was Valentine's Day, 2002. And we found ourselves three days before Valentine's Day at a, a party with uh, several other pastors in a restaurant. And I was laughing and telling stories and just having a great time. I'm, I guess I can be kind of funny, I guess. They were all, they were all laughing and people were just, you know, interacting with me and, you know, and I was just having a great time. And we had argued all the way to this event. And when we got in the car to go home, uh, Art looked at me and he said, that's the wife I want back. And I said, well, if I get the husband I had back, then you can have the wife you had back. And it was kind of a, like an old Mexican standoff. You know, I, I wanted him to see my point and he wanted me to see his and neither one of us was very movable. And so we, we talked about that because we were not unaware that we were both being a little stubborn and foolish, but neither one of us had the strength, perhaps, um, after our ordeal to be the one to make the move to change. We, we wanted the other person to see our perspective more than we wanted um, what God wanted for our marriage. And so we made a decision to go back to that same restaurant. We decided we'd order the same food, but we didn't realize they were going to change the menu because it was Valentine's Day. So we couldn't order the same food, but we went back to the same restaurant and we sat down and we decided that we were going to redeem the night that we'd spent with other people um, together, but very separate. And we decided we would redeem that. And so we each brought a Valentine's Day card for the other person. And I find this so funny. We picked out the exact same Valentine's Day card, completely separate. It was the least romantic Valentine's Day card ever made. It was just like, happy Valentine's Day. I love you. Yeah. You know, it was just so, so unromantic, so benign. And, and we had written the same exact sentence at the end. We had each written, I will do whatever it takes to keep my vows before God. So we really weren't liking each other very much. We were just keeping our vows before God. I signed mine, love Sharon. He signed his love art. And we sat there that night over that meal and we talked and talked and talked and talked and talked for a very, very, very long time. We had to leave the waiter a very big tip because we took his table for the whole night. And we talked about everything. We, we repented before each other. We repented before the Lord for 
everything we could think of. And we even repented for things that we'd forgotten that we'd done. I mean, we just covered the gamut, uh, repenting toward each other. And we made a vow that moving forward, we would never again neglect the other person for anything that came, um, that anything that came up, no matter what trauma or what stress happened to us again, we would always put the other one first and we would always make sure we're on the same page with where we were going with the trauma. And so that was a Thursday night and, um, Sunday night, which would have been uh, Thursday, Friday, I think February 17th was the night that I got pregnant with our daughter, Catherine. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's very emotional. Okay. Here's the deal. Five mistakes. And then next podcast, we're talking about five things we did well in ministry, right? Absolutely. So, well, here's the deal. It looks like my coffee cup is empty. So that's my cue to close this broadcast for today. Until we meet again, keep your coffee strong and your walk with God stronger.